Jesus had given so many promises before he left. So many commandments, so many things to give his disciples hope and to give them instruction. But among one of the greatest, John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him. For He dwells with you and He will be in you. That's John chapter 14. Two chapters later, He makes a similar statement. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Really some amazing Amazing promises and statements. Of course, we know when he mentions the Helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And this amazing statement he makes that it's actually to our advantage that he left. It's to our advantage that Christ departed from this earth because if he didn't, he wouldn't have sent the Helper, the Holy Spirit. If nothing else from those promises, one thing becomes very clear. That there was something coming that was completely different than anything that had been before. There was something coming for these disciples. There was something coming for the church. There was something completely new. Something that didn't exist before. Some fundamental change. Something that was absolutely necessary in the life of every believer and the existence of every church. That shouldn't be misinterpreted, by the way, to say that the Holy Spirit was somehow new. Not in the sense that the Holy Spirit had never come to the earth. He's always been here. He's always been active from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, there He is hovering over the waters, uh, involved in superintending in the acts of creation. In fact, uh, we're told that He was... He was intimately involved in creation. The Holy Spirit was, of course, involved even in the Old Testament in acts of regeneration. That is, He was involved in giving new life to people, causing them to be born again. You remember in John chapter 3, Jesus chided Nicodemus, a leader in Israel, for not understanding this. For not realizing that all those places in the Old Testament where it spoke about the need to have a circumcised heart, that is the need to have the old life set aside and a new life brought, was the work of the Holy Spirit being born again. He chided him for not understanding that. Jesus taught in that very passage, John chapter 3, that in order for someone to enter the kingdom of God, he had to be born of water and of the Spirit. That is, he had to be born of natural birth and born of spiritual birth. Or it might be interpreted he had to be cleansed and also renewed by the Spirit. Either way, it's clearly speaking about spiritual birth, the work of the Holy Spirit. Even Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, since we have the same Spirit of faith According to what has been written, I believe, so I spoke. We also believe. He says, look, it's the same Spirit that has granted us faith as what gave the Old Testament saints faith. 
Holy Spirit was doing this in the Old Testament, just as He does in the New Era. It wasn't anything new for Him to give regeneration to circumcised people's hearts. It wasn't new for the Holy Spirit to sanctify people. He was also involved doing that, setting them apart from sin. Men like Enoch and Elijah who were godly and walked with God and were no more. People like Hannah who prayed and faithfully depended on the Lord. Saints who were set apart from sin. And we're told as we come into the New Testament with more clarity that the only way to experience this kind of Righteous walk is to walk not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. He had to be involved because there is no other way to be sanctified. We're never given any other alternative. There is not a, an old way and a new way. There's not an Old Testament way. There's not a way according to the law and a way according to the Spirit. We're told without any uncertain terms that the only way we can be sanctified is reliance on the Holy Spirit. He was active in doing that in the Old Testament. We know, of course, the Spirit was active in other things like inspiration where Peter says, look, men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote Scripture, right? Second Peter chapter 1. He was involved with inspiring men to write the Holy Scriptures. He superintended their thoughts. He took their ideas, their experiences, their personalities, their plans, and he wove that into a process whereby God infallibly revealed His truth and they infallibly recorded it as they wrote the Holy Scriptures. He was involved in a very active way, in that way in the Old Testament. None of this activity was new. The Holy Spirit has been doing much among men from the very beginning of creation. We might add to that, the Holy Spirit was filling people. Over and over again, we read about Him empowering people for particular callings and particular tasks empowering them, perhaps we might say for limited, in limited cases and for limited pur- purposes and maybe even for limited people, but He was active in doing this. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit would come upon certain men or even women in the Old Testament and fill them to accomplish certain tasks. As one writer put it, these were basically kings and prophets and priests. A classic expression of this was, of course, the anointing of Saul and David as kings in Israel. The Bible says that the Spirit came upon them, uh, Saul in 1 Samuel 10, David in 1 Samuel 16. Once they are anointed, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit came upon them to accomplish the very important task the Lord had called them to. In fact, one of the most memorable verses in Scripture for so many people, in Psalm 51, verse 11, David particularly cries out, as he's grappling with his own sin, having, having been involved with the murder of a man, having been involved with an adulterous affair, he comes and he pours out his heart in repentance and brokenness before the Lord. And in the midst of that prayer, he prays to the Lord, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, Where did he get the idea that God would somehow take his spirit away? He wasn't, by the way, talking about losing his salvation. He wasn't praying that God wouldn't take away his salvation. In fact, he, he simply just wanted the restoration of the joy of it. He hadn't lost his salvation. He didn't need it restored. 
But he knew very well that he could lose the spirit. At least in this anointing and filling. He knew that. Because it had happened to Saul. Remember? The Lord had actually taken the spirit away from Saul. He had a very vivid picture. In his life of what that looks like. And he didn't want any part of it. He didn't want a life that was void of that spirit. You had priests who were filled with the Spirit. You had prophets who were filled with the Spirit. Often the Scripture would just say the Spirit came upon them for a particular word or a particular season, for a particular event. All of these situations, sometimes limited people, limited time, limited purposes, but you see the Spirit was active, very active in the Old Testament. So the point is that the Spirit's activity itself wasn't new. His presence among men wasn't new. But Jesus was very clear that something was about to change. Listen, the newness of the Spirit didn't have to do with His presence. It wasn't the presence of the Spirit that was going to be new. But it was the extent of of his work. It wasn't a newness of presence, it was a newness of extent. Or as one preacher suggested, you might say that now in the new age of the Spirit, since the dawning of the church and the opening chapters of the book of Acts, which we are coming to tonight, you might say that in this new age of the Spirit, we are all kings, we are all prophets, and we are all priests. The Spirit is working among his church. In a new era of fullness. Acts chapter 2 is our passage for tonight as we come to it. And we look at the pouring out of this spirit. We read when the day of Pentecost arrived. They were all together in one place. That is all the disciples. All the believers basically who were in Jerusalem. There were only about 120 of them here. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now this is just a record of events. This is... This is just raw data for us. There isn't a whole lot of interpretation by Luke. There is some by Peter as he stands up to preach a sermon later in the chapter as we'll look at in the coming weeks. But really, not a whole lot of explanation here of exactly what's taking place. As a matter of fact, the clearest explanation you get is in chapter 11 of the book of Acts. I invite you to turn with me there. Acts 11 verse 15. This is uh, Peter's report to other Jews about how a very similar thing had happened in Acts chapter 10 to the Gentiles. And this is his, this is his statement. This is his interpretation of it. In Acts 11:15, he says, I began to speak and the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
This is how Peter describes the events in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 10 for that matter. He's referring to the promise of Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry recorded for us in Matthew, recorded for us in Luke chapter 3, where it is said, actually by John, uh, where he says that Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. This is the new work. This baptism, this immersion, that's what it means. Baptism, we're going to be completely immersed. It's an image of completeness. It's an image of fullness. It describes what is fundamentally new about this age this new age of the spirit it's a baptism in the spirit this is similar to what john 14 7 as we read when he says for he the holy spirit dwells with you and he will be in you we read that and immediately we typically think of location we usually think of space we think of where the holy spirit is located well, guess what? The Holy Spirit's located everywhere, isn't He? He is God. He's omnipresent. He's not necessarily trying to give us a, for if you want a fancy word, an ontological explanation of the Holy Spirit's existence. He's not trying to explain to us where the Holy Spirit is located. What He's, not, what he's giving us is not a statement about His location, but a statement about our experience with Him. He's giving us not, a, not a, a locational reference, but an experiential reference. He's describing with this language the new fullness of experience that we will have with the Holy Spirit. He says, look, it's like He was with you, but in the new age, it'll be like He's in you. You will know Him in a more intimate way. You'll know Him in a deeper way, in a fuller way. You will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. You will be immersed. This is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. By the way, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it isn't anything separate from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we sometimes refer to, picking up that reference there in John fourteen seventeen, He'll be in you. It's not some separate work, some subsequent work, though some people have tried to make it out as such. They would suggest that whenever you are saved, that somehow you're saved apart from this work of the Holy Spirit, and then sometime later down the road, you might continue to be saved and walking in sin, but somewhere, well, somewhere later down the road, you get baptized with the Holy Spirit and suddenly you're made holy. This subsequent work of grace, the second work of grace, some people refer to it maybe as the deeper life, the higher life. There's all kinds of expressions of it. There's no concept of that in the Bible. This work of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit is presented to us as something that inaugurated the church here in Acts chapter 2. But from that point on is the experience of every believer the moment they profess faith in Christ. 
You're never taught, in other words, you're never taught as a believer that you receive Jesus Christ and then you have to seek after this baptism of the Holy Spirit. These aren't two separate works of the Holy Spirit, but the promise of Christ is this, that when the Holy Spirit comes, that He will immerse you in a way that's never been before. There will be something fundamentally new about the church that didn't exist in the Old Testament. It's like the Holy Spirit was just among you, but now in this new baptism of the Spirit, it's like He'll be in you. A deeper and a richer and a fuller work of the Holy Spirit in a more intense way. So while the Holy Spirit certainly had been active among men in centuries past, while He had been regenerating men, we know that. While He had been sanctifying men, we know that. While He had even been inspiring some men, and in some cases even filling some men. Maybe for temporary time, temporary purposes. What we read here in Acts 2 is something totally, totally new. This is a new day. This is a transition point. This is a movement from the old to the new, from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the old manifestation to the new manifestation, from the old paradigm to the new paradigm. This is all about a new work that God is doing. You're reading here in Acts chapter 2 a pivot point. A pivot point from an old paradigm to a new paradigm. And God draws attention to this transition to this new work with certain signs. That's our focus tonight as we come back to Acts chapter 2. Certain signs, as I said before, you're just sort of given a description of these events. You're not really given a lot of interpretation about what's taking place. But as you come to this passage, it's important that you grasp this newness to begin to understand what's taking place here. And then to understand these events that you grasp so many of these images that are given to us in other places in the word of God. So that we can fully understand all that is communicated by the sovereign work of God in this new age. Let's just start by outlining some of the details of what's taking place. You see in the first six verses here, the appearance of these signs. The appearance of these signs. Just a record of events. Just sort of a a raw history, if you will, but... For those who have known their scriptures and those who understood Jewish life, several things are communicated simply in the timing and the images that the Lord gives at this event. Let's just look at these, in particular, four signs that help us explain these events. First of all, the first one is not a supernatural sign necessarily, it's a providential one. That is the sign of the timing. A sign of the timing. The timing of when this all took place indicated something. Luke tells us there in verse 1, all of this took place when the day of Pentecost arrived. The Feast of Pentecost, or sometimes called the Feast of Weeks, was spelled out in a number of places in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 23, Exodus 34, Leviticus 23. All these places spell out in some places great detail about 
feast, a number of feasts that Israel was to participate in. Of course, the first one, the big one, was Passover. It was the 14th day of the first month on the Jewish calendar, the, day, the month of Abib. They were to celebrate Passover, and immediately after that, the second great feast, the Feast of first fruits, which took place on the Sabbath following Passover. That was what initiated the Feast of the first fruits. It sort of celebrated the very first of the harvest. That was what it's intended to do. You take your first fruits that you took from your, your, your field, and you're supposed to take it to the Lord and wave in a wave offering before the Lord these first fruits, offering it up to Him. After that, you were to pass you were to pass seven weeks, seven sevens, forty-nine days. That's why this is sometimes called the Feast of Weeks. And after those forty-nine days, on the fiftieth day, the day after the forty-nine days, you have Pentecost. That's basically what Pentecost means. It means fiftieth. So this is the fiftieth. This is the celebration of the fiftieth. Now we can spend a lot of time speculating about what was symbolized in these basically harvest festivals and probably after all was said and done we wouldn't have made much ground. There is all kinds of speculation about what the Old Testament feasts might have been symbolizing. That's not so much our focus tonight but the one thing we know is that the 50th day after the Sabbath following Passover was what day? It was Sunday. It was Sunday. The 50th day after the 49, 49 days following the Sabbath after the Passover, that was the first day of the week. It was Sunday. For all the discussion about the meaning of the feast, that's the one thing we know for certain. This was the first day of the week. That was the day that the Pentecost was celebrated. This was all taking place on Sunday, which at this point was, for most Jews, a meaningless day. No more important to them than Monday for you. It was just the day after their holy day. They were focused on the Sabbath. They were focused on Saturday, the seventh day of the week. They set it apart as holy because it was the day on which the Lord rested from His work in creation. It was the day designated in the law that they was. They were set apart as a day of rest. But God doesn't pour out His Spirit on that holy day. God doesn't mark this new age of the Spirit on that day. He marks this new age of the Spirit on a new day. A new day for a new age. The first day of the week, a Sunday, which of course was the day of the Lord's resurrection, right? We know that. Of course, Luke 24, verse 1 says it was on this day, the first day of the week, it was on Sunday that He rose from the grave. If you have your Bibles, you can look back with me at John, just a couple pages back in your Bible, verse 19. It says, on that evening, after He rose from the grave, on that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. So He appears to them that evening of the first day, that evening of Sunday, He appears to them and gives them 
encouragement. He gives them a discourse. Probably what we have recorded here is just a very small portion of what he said to them. He no doubt taught them on that first night together, gathered together. And then you go down to verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Now, you have to understand the way that Jews counted days when they said it was eight days. He's not talking about Tuesday because they counted the day from which they started. So this would be basically Sunday to Sunday. So this is another Sunday. They would count Sunday the first day, Monday the second day, Tuesday the third day, and move all the way up till the eighth day, which would be the next Sunday. Once again, the Lord doesn't appear to them on a Sabbath day. He doesn't appear to them on any other day of the week. He appears to them on a Sunday. And then when we come to Acts chapter 2, when the Lord poured out His Spirit on them, it was again a Sunday. So it's not surprising that this became the practice of the early church. They began to meet for worship, not on the Sabbath, but on Sunday. It became their special day. You see it designated as the day that the church would gather to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, perhaps maybe even to remember that this was the day the Lord poured out the Spirit. When you come to Acts chapter 20, almost two decades after Acts chapter 2, you find it as a statement of of just the regular practice of the church, that this was the day that they would gather to break bread. You come to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, again, two decades later, and it's just a matter of course. This is obvious this became the regular practice of the church. By the final decade of the first century, John, writing the book of Revelation in John 1.10, he simply refers to it as the Lord's Day. It was now the Lord's Day. This is all because God had set the schedule. This is when God showed up. This is when He poured out His Spirit. You'll occasionally encounter a Seventh-day Adventist, sometimes even what they call Seventh-day Baptist, who still cling to the old covenant day of worship, Saturday. But what's very clear as you look into the Scripture and just take note of all these clues is that the inauguration of the new age of the Spirit came with the inauguration of a new day of worship. That's why we gather on Sundays. There's a second sign, going back to Acts chapter 2. A second sign we can take note of here, and that's the sign of the sound. The sign of the sound. In verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Luke never actually says a wind came. He simply says the sound of a wind came. We're not exactly sure why. But one thing we do know is that wind was often an image associated with the coming of the Spirit. In fact, the word Spirit itself, whether it's in Hebrew, the word ruach, or whether it's in Greek, the word pneuma, both of them basically mean wind or breath. That's what they mean. That's the essential meaning of it. If you have your Bibles, look with me back for a second at Ezekiel 37, because it's probably illustrated there as well as anywhere. Luke 37. Some of you know the story. This is the vision of the valley of dry bones. Ezekiel writes in verse 1, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and He brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. 
And he led me among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones. And say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you. And that word breath, that's the word ruach. That's the word spirit in the Old Testament. I will cause breath, I will cause spirit to enter into you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and, you, and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover, your, uh, cover you with skin and put breath, again the same word, in you and you will live. And you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a sound. Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, and bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh came upon them, and skin had covered them, and there was no breath, same word, in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, and exceedingly great army. Now you could very well, just as well, translate that whole passage, and instead of translating it breath, you could translate it wind. Instead of translating it wind, you could translate it spirit. It's the same word. All the way through. Of course, we're familiar with John chapter 3. We turn over there and we read again this interchange between spirit and wind. John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus had come to Jesus asking him where he comes from. Because of the great signs that he does, he understood that the he must be from God, that Jesus must be from God. Jesus answers him in verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one's born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, one must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. See, this is a common image. This was very common because the Word was so interchangeable. People associated wind with the Spirit. So back in Luke, um, excuse me, back in Acts chapter 2, the Lord is using a very familiar image, a very familiar sign to make it clear that what is happening is a coming of the Holy Spirit. And the phenomenon that are taking place are the result of the arrival of this Spirit in a new way. Because again, we're not saying the Spirit had never been present. Jesus himself had already made clear the Spirit was with you. But He's present in a new way. In this new age. We could add to this a third sign. There's a sign of fire. Luke says in verse 3, divided tongues of fire appeared on them and rested on each, excuse me, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
This is yet another familiar image in the minds of many Jews because fire was often associated with the presence of God. We're all familiar with the story of Moses and a burning and flaming bush. A bush that continued to burn and wasn't consumed. That was a sign of God's presence. And whenever he would eventually lead the children of Israel out into the wilderness, he would take them to the foot of Mount Sinai and it says that the, 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 uh, the, the mountain was smoking like a huge, enormous kiln. That's the word it uses. Like a, a, an enormous fire was up there. You know why? Because God was up there. It was a, a symbol of his presence. And he would lead them each night by what? By a pillar of fire. An emblem of his perpetual presence along with the children of Israel. See, they understood fire was a representation of the presence of God. And so with this, in this case, these tongues of fire coming down, not just to one individual, not just to the leaders, not just to the preachers or the apostles, but at this special moment, he came down these tongues of fire and rested on each and every one of them. See, in the Old Testament, the fire was always outside the camp. The, the pillar of fire always was outside the camp. The, 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 the smoking mountain was always up there. There was a period of time whenever they set up the tabernacle and God symbolically took His residence in it with the sign of this pillar coming down and resting on it. But it was always something that was separate. This was an image, however, this very visible sign as the Holy Spirit's being poured out, that He's being poured out in a universal way. You don't have now just kings, and you don't have now just priests, and you don't now have now just prophets who are receiving this enormous and incredible and intimate work of the Holy Spirit. Everyone is being baptized. Everyone is being baptized in this new age of the Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. One more sign, a fourth one that we take note of here. This is the most memorable for most people. It's the sign of languages. The sign of languages. Luke's statement there in verse 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit that began to speak to one another in tongues or in languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. We're not going to spend a lot of time on the details of this miracle because we gave devoted attention to it last time we came together on Sunday evening. We took note that the word tongues is the Greek word glossa, which everywhere else is translated language it's really an unfortunate tradition in the english bible that it came down to us as tongues because it's created so much confusion this isn't the incoherent babbling and gibberish that's often passed off today as speaking in tongues these were genuine known languages and luke emphasizes that point in verses 5 through 11 by listing no less than 15 different groups of people and nationalities all of them hearing the works of God proclaimed in their own tongue. Some people, by the way, have suggested that what's taking place is that the disciples were speaking 
in some sort of angelic tongue, some sort of unknown tongue, and the miracle was in the hearing. Well, that's a very odd statement to suggest that somehow the Holy Spirit was giving gifts of interpretation to unbelievers. Nowhere in Scripture are we ever told that the Spirit gifts unbelievers. It wasn't a gift of hearing, it was a gift of speaking. They were speaking supernaturally languages they had never studied. And the people from the various countries recognized the miracle that these Galileans were speaking in their mother tongues, as we went into great detail last time. That kind of explains what happened. It doesn't really tell us why it happened. But just like with all these other signs, if you want to understand that, you're going to have to understand it from the context of the rest of Scripture. And in fact, Paul gives us very clear explanation of exactly why this took place. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in verse 20. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Paul's basically addressing this whole issue of tongues throughout this entire chapter. And he says this. He says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it's written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are... A sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Now, let me just explain to you a little bit from the context here. Paul is basically explaining a statement he had made in verse 19. And his statement is this, Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let me paraphrase that for you. Paul's basically saying, I would never, never, ever, ever speak tongues in the church what he's saying uh, he said i'd rather i'd rather speak just five words that you can understand than ten thousand in a tongue he's saying i'd never do it in the church well why well that's what verses 20 through 22 is all about because it wasn't intended for the church it wasn't intended for believers he says in verse 22 it was intended for unbelievers it was a sign for unbelievers. He explains this by quoting from the Old Testament. He explains to them this by quoting from Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 through 12. He says, look, I don't want you to be immature. I don't want you to go around and think about these things immaturely. I want you to have a mature understanding of this issue of tongues. And let me explain it to you. He quotes from Isaiah 28. A passage of warning to Jerusalem. And to the southern kingdom of Israel. Of, of Judah. Isaiah is warning them of pending judgment. If they don't listen to. And respond to. The word of God. And yet they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. In fact let me turn back over there. And read that to you. It's illustrative in so many ways. Isaiah chapter 28, he gives them this warning. And they actually complain. In verse 9, he quotes these 
these complainers of Israel, and they're saying, to whom will he teach knowledge? They're talking about Isaiah. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk, those taken from breast, for it's precept upon precept, and precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. They're saying, look, he's talking to us like babies. This preacher is just treating us like toddlers. I mean, it's just, it's the same basic message over and over and over again, line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. They're, he's treating us like toddlers. Who is he going to explain these mysteries and teach us in knowledge? God had done this, as a matter of fact, as an act of mercy to make the message very crystal clear. Very clear, but also as an act of judgment so that no one would have an excuse. But now, the Lord says it won't always be that way because there's coming a day, verse 11, He says, by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. You you will long for the day, he says, when it was so simple. You'll long for the day when when it was given to you in the clearest, most simple, most straightforward presentation by your own prophets from your own nation in your own tongue. Some people speculate that this might have been initially fulfilled in some way by the Babylonians who carried off Israel into captivity, forcing them to learn a new language which was Aramaic. But Paul is saying, whether or not that application is there or not, it most certainly applies to the gift of tongues. The point is, tongues were intended as a sign of judgment. God didn't give them to to be some personal blessing to you. He didn't give them to be some personal blessing to the church. He gave them as a sign of judgment to Israel. A sign of judgment to Israel. And so it's telling, as we come back to Acts chapter 2, that in the dawning of this new age of the Spirit... That God, as He pours out His Spirit, the initial proclamation of the mercies of God come not in Hebrew, not even in Aramaic, but they come in all these other languages. All these other languages as a sign to Israel that in the new age of the Spirit, God is doing a new work. And it's not through them. It's not through them. It's not to say God's finished with Israel. God would use, Romans 11 tells us, God will use the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. One day He'll finish His work with them. But as it stands in the dawning of this new age, He gives a sign with the coming of the Spirit. A sign that in this new age, his work's going to be primarily 
through a new people. Well, that kind of takes us through the signs really quickly. Let's just take note of the amazement of the crowd. This is, this is really the focus as you come to verse 7. Because it says that as they heard all this, all this commotion, as they heard the language as they were speaking, it says they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And down in verse 12, even again, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? This, this sort of gives you a little bit of an inside perspective over how the original first century people who were experiencing this saw these events. Now, this was something that caught their attention. This was something that amazed them. We're not actually told exactly how this took place because it seems that they were gathered initially in a room, but then they spilled out into the streets and eventually probably made their way to the temple. They were sitting, it says, all together in one place back in verse 2. But by the time you get to verse 14, Peter is there in the temple. He lifts up his voice and preaches to them. So probably they spill out into the streets and they're proclaiming all the mighty works of God as they're going up in procession to the temple. And all the people listening in are absolutely amazed at what's taking place. This is miraculous. This is tremendous, tremendous signs. There's no, there's no sense here that somehow these people were themselves experiencing gifts of the Holy Spirit, supernatural signs, uh, supernatural gifts of hearing, but they were amazed at what the Spirit was doing in those speaking. You see that amazement, and then I want you to notice Verse 13, the assessment. Others were mocking, saying that they're filled with new wine. Really, there are two pejoratives in this passage. Back in verse uh, 7, they they mentioned that they're Galileans. That's not a flattering uh, designation. Those were the hicks. And they're basically saying, now look, how how can these hicks speak all these languages? That's, that's what they're saying. So they're, may, they're amazed, first of all, that these Galileans would be demonstrating this. And then, and then secondly, he says, look, they must be filled with new wine. The word is glucose. It can be translated sweet wine. It's wine that hasn't fermented fully. It's barely fermented at all. It's, what it is, it's cheap. It's cheap wine. It's the wine that's only been bound up for a couple months. It's maybe just barely started to ferment. And so what they're suggesting is that these are a bunch of backwoods hicks who who, who have gone out and gotten a bunch of cheap wine, which you had to drink just tons of it. And that's what they've been doing all night, just sitting around drinking glucose all night, and now it's beginning to affect them, both the sugar boost and the slight amount of fermentation that might have been there, so that they are giddy. It's a combination of the sugar and the 
little bit of alcohol that would have been in this wine. These are not promising beginnings for the people of Israel, are they? Not very promising. God will eventually, thankfully, through Peter's preaching, save many. But at the dawning of the new age, it's really sad that what we have to see is the same old, same old from Israel. They will, by and large, on the whole, still reject their Messiah. They will, by and large, on the whole, still persecute the church. But praise be to God that His Spirit is doing something new. That He's taking us who were far off and bringing us near and absolutely immersing us in the Spirit in a way that Old Testament believers never knew, in a way that they had never experienced. We get to taste the sweetness of the fellowship that comes to us through this new age of the Spirit. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Lord, we are just thankful as we look at the facts, the record here. Because by the teaching of your Holy Spirit, by the illumination of your word, we, we know, we see, we understand that this was the pouring out of a new day. Lord, we're thankful that we get to taste of the Spirit. And as Jesus said, He wells up within us now like, like a, a spring of water gushing forth in our hearts. We're thankful that You didn't just sprinkle a little bit of the Spirit on and around us, but that You completely, completely immersed us. Lord, we pray then that we would take advantage of all the resources of the Spirit that You've given to us, that we would yield to the Spirit, that we would walk in the Spirit, that we wouldn't grieve the, the Spirit who's been given to us. And in this new intensity and this new fellowship by the Spirit, that we would be, that we would fulfill all that You desire the church to be according to all that You've given to us in the blessings of this new age. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.